The New National American Elite America is now ruled by a single elite class, rather than by local patrician smart sets competing with each other for money and power. By Michael Lind In the third decade of the 21st century the social register still exists, there are still debutante balls, polo and lacrosse are still patrician sports, and old money families still summer at Newport. But these are fossil relics of an older class system. The rising ruling class in America is found in every major city in every region. Membership in it depends on having the right diplomas and the right beliefs. To observers of the American class system in the 21st century, the common conflation of social class with income is a source of amusement as well as frustration. Depending on how you slice and dice the population, you can come up with as many income classes as you like, four classes with 25%, or the 99% against the 1%, or the 99.99% against the 0.01%. In the United States, as in most advanced societies, class tends to be a compound of income, wealth, education, ethnicity, religion, and race, in various proportions. There has never been a society in which the ruling class consisted merely of a basket of random rich people. Progressives who equate class with money naturally fall into the mistake of thinking you can reduce class differences by sending lower-income people cash in the form of a universal basic income, for example. Meanwhile, populists on the right tend to imagine that the United States was much more egalitarian within the white majority itself than it really was, whether in the 1950s or the 1850s. Both sides miss the real story of the evolution of the American class system in the last half century toward the consolidation of a national ruling class, a development which is unprecedented in U.S. history. That's because, from the American Revolution until the late 20th century, the American elite was divided among regional oligarchies. It is only in the last generation that these regional patriciates have been absorbed into a single, increasingly homogeneous national oligarchy, with the same accent, manners, values, and educational backgrounds from Boston to Austin and San Francisco to New York and Atlanta. This is a truly epochal development. In living memory, every major city in the United States had its own old money families with their own clubs and their own rituals in their own social and economic networks. Often the money was not very old, going back to a real estate killing or a mining fortune or an oil strike a generation or two before. Even so, the heirs and heiresses set themselves up as a local aristocracy. Like other aristocracies, these urban patricians renewed their bloodlines and bank accounts by admitting new money once the parvenus had served probation and assimilated the values of the local patriciate. These regional urban patriciates were similar demographically at a time when the racial caste system that divided whites from non-whites was accompanied by an ethnic caste system among whites. Within the white population, Anglo-American Protestants, preferably Episcopalian or Presbyterian, were at the top followed by Anglo-Americans belonging to more vulgar denominations like the Methodists and Baptists. German and Scandinavian Americans could be honorary Anglo-Americans. But Irish-American Catholics, Jews, and Italian and Polish-Americans occupied a lower rung. Mexican-Americans occupied an ambiguous position. In some areas they were discriminated against as blacks were, in others they were treated as the equivalent of low-status whites. Black Americans and Asian-Americans were excluded. The Anglo-American Protestant patricians in every region and state shared a common Anglo-American and transatlantic culture, but not a common national culture. Instead, they had regional cultures separately based on a common British and European heritage. 
This is so peculiar that it needs to be explained. Let us begin with what they shared. Transatlantic culture. From the earliest days of the Republic, the wealthy elites of even the most remote and godforsaken parts of the South and West could afford to vacation in Europe. They would bring back the latest French and British fashions to rural Mississippi or Wyoming. Before the self-consciously regional prairie style of Frank Lloyd Wright, there was never any in